Good evening, dear brothers and sisters. Welcome all listeners at Kardec Radio. We're here live broadcasting from Northern California. And every week we get together to talk about the Life After Life Spirit Reports that we take from the beautiful book Heaven and Hell by Alan Kardec. The second half of Heaven and Hell is dedicated to bringing to us many different dear spirits who report back to us of their experience in the spirit world. We are currently in the category of suicides and last week we talked about an atheist and we only did the first half of the atheist story and invocation and this week we will do the second half. But before we begin with our atheist's brother, who is the one who we will be studying tonight, I wanted to pull out the beautiful book, I'm sure you know it, Happy Life by Divaldo Franco, and it is written by the beautiful spirit Joanna G. Angelis, the Angelis, and we find on page 70 a beautiful little story about death that will help us in our daily life in our daily lives to see death and connect with our so-called death and it's just the death of the physical form in a new way and let us start with that and if you can and like you may close your eyes and see that as the opening prayer and this is from Joanna De Angelis meditate on death from time to time Death claims enemies and loved ones and could claim you, yourself, at any given moment. Prepare yourself every day as if it were your last day on earth. By getting used to the idea of death, it will not hurt you when it comes for you or a loved one. St. Francis of Assisi waited for death with the same serenity with which he weeded his garden. And so be it. It is an invitation for us to connect and think and meditate on the death of our physical form every single day. And as a next step, I would like to pull out this book, Thought and Life by Emmanuel, a wonderful study very deep you can never we can never study this book enough the second to last chapter is titled death and while we're not going to read the whole chapter because you can do that on your own and study it by yourself we wanted to pull out just a few highlights that will help us to understand the death of our physical form hopefully a little bit more so in the beginning of the book, Emmanuel introduces um, a concept to us where he says that the mind stands as the mirror of life. Consequently, the name of the book, Thought and Life, we could also call it probably Thought is Life, because as we think, he teaches us, as we think, so we emit, and as we emit, we attract. It is the law of attraction. It's the law of, of affinity. As we think, we emit, 
and as we emit it comes back we attract and that's why he says the mind stands as the mirror of life so having having that concept in our minds he begins the chapter on death as follows seeing that our mind is the mirror of life we should have no difficulty in understanding that immediately after death the images that will prevail are those more deeply etched on its surface they were engraved there by our will through persistent and intensive mental reaction. So what is he saying here? He is saying as we spend our lifetimes thinking thoughts, thinking, having mental activity, and most of us, if not all, have a certain pattern in our thinking. We have a certain pattern. And the more we're thinking in a certain way, the deeper it is etched on our mental body. And that's why he says that is the images that will prevail are those more deeply etched on its surface, on the surface of our mental body. So the more we think the similar or same thoughts, the more deeply etched they are. Consequently, when we excarnate, these persistent and intensive mental actions will be our lives, will be what we will be living in, will, will be the broth we will be swimming in. And he also says, because death is just a door, some people believe that when we excarnate, we will be resting in peace or we will be becoming angels or we will be all of a sudden um, super wise. Well, that's not true. When we excarnate, we're really the same people, the same spirits. So whatever we dwell on during our lifetimes is what we will be dealing with once we don't have a physical body anymore. And we can imagine if those thought forms are positive and loving and turn towards the good, we will be happy spirits. We will be enjoying our time as a spirit. We will be able to move on and, and learn more lessons more quickly. We will be able to transform faster. However, if we dwell on negativity and addictions and you know all the negative things we are very familiar with, that's what we will be dealing with. And as we're studying the suicides currently, we see the torment, the pain, the agony they're going through because they obviously did not spend their lifetimes, the majority of their lifetimes, with positive mental activities. He goes on to say, therefore, after our transition to the grave, we naturally become obsessed by the pictures that our imagination creates and are kept in a state of hallucination. We become obsessed with the pictures that our imagination creates. Those are based on the thoughts, the primary thought forms we entertained in our bodies. We can now ask ourselves, what is my, what are my thoughts during every single day? Am I just being negative about the political situation in the world? 
Am I fearful of my life, my children's life, my health? Or am I focused on, from the beginning of the, in the morning, on what, how I can be of service, how I can do the good? Am I focused to connect with the spirits on high, always asking how can I be of service, how can I do the good? Those are the questions that we may want to ask ourselves and meditate on because it is right now that we can switch our mental patterns and therewith create a better future, not only in while we're dwelling in our bodies, but also in our life after life when we're, when we're in spirit form. That is the proposal. That is our invitation. He says, death gives us a certificate at the completion of each life. As every spirit more or less transforms himself into what he keeps in his mind. So we cannot escape our, our mental patterns unless we change them. So he says we are receiving a certificate at the completion of our lives. And we a spirit will more or less transform ourselves into what we kept in our minds. That will be our personal heaven or our personal hell. Hell, if it's really negative. Heaven, if it's positive. This is how death distills our total mental content and compels us to live temporarily within these thought patterns. And the word temporarily is really important because there's always hope. We will never be stuck forever in any situation as thanks to God, benevolent God, and the many spirit helpers that are always helping us. We will not get stuck. And plus, we will be working on ourselves. We will always be active. Law of progress will propel us forward. And of course, we're co-creators, so we need to do our share. Then he says, if the content of our minds is good, we have our portion of heaven that corresponds to the best we have built within ourselves. On the other hand, however, if it is bad, we must of necessity be detained in our portion of hell. So dear friend, a hell that was our own making created in the intimacy of our conscience. <sighs> Let us recommit to observing, learning to become more conscious of our thought patterns because it is exactly our thoughts that create our lives in this incarnation and beyond. This book is fantastic. It really teaches us all the ins and outs of our thinking and the importance of that. So now, let me say hello to our community here. There's so many dear friends, Teresa Castro, thank you dear friend for joining. And there's Rita de Cassia, thank you. What a blessing to have you. And there's Tony, hello Tony, so lovely to have you too. And there's So Sosa, thank you for joining. It's such a pleasure to have you all. And who else is there? There's Susan Hood Kaufman. Hello from, from Virginia. So nice to have you, um, Susan. We're in California. So this is a coast to coast transmission and hopefully even more. I don't know where everyone else is. I know Teresa is on the East Coast, but
but if you're from somewhere else let, let us know so we can celebrate our intercontinental classroom so friends now let us go to um, our atheist for those of you who were not here last week or who may have forgotten because I know how it goes let us quickly recap what um, the main challenges that the atheist had and why he committed suicide he was of course an atheist so that's challenge number one he was not poor in spirit in other words he was not a humble man he was very prideful and he was not capable of recognizing a power more powerful than himself he was not able to recognize that there is a benevolent loving God who is always looking after us he felt hopeless he lost hope and we learned last week and we find that in the gospel according to spiritism that faith is the mother of hope so if he was hopeless didn't have any hope he must not have had any faith either because they go together actually Faith is not only the mother of hope, it's also the mother of charity. So our friend was most likely not charitable and didn't have any faith either because he felt, according to his own words, hopeless. And that is probably one of the main ingredients for taking our lives, for, for committing suicide, is feeling hopeless. Losing that spark, that divine spark of progress not knowing that this too shall pass. And then our friend was very prideful, obviously, because he was an atheist and he was hopeless because faith is the mother of hope and charity. So when you're prideful, you can't be charitable either. Because in the spirits book, we learn that from the illuminated spirits that the worst vice there is, the worst um, fault we might we can have and it's actually also the most common is to be prideful and selfish and they always go together so when we become prideful which is the antidote to charity we can't be charitable when we are prideful because when we're prideful we're selfish so if this whole thing is one big package deal a negative package deal hopeless not having any faith, to be prideful, to not have any charity is the negative concoction. And that is something we need and want to break through. So when we become prideful, we're of course selfish, but we also often feel hatred. And out of the hatred, we commit crimes. We have envy and that can all of that can even lead to murder. And then of course, when we're prideful, we often harbor disobedience because disobedience means we need to admit that maybe there is other forces, people, spirits, and of course, God, Jesus, Mother Mary, so many spirits on high that might know more than we do. And that means we need to surrender. Disobedience is, is um, defined in the gospel according to spiritism as surrender of, of reason surrender of our mind and we cannot do that when we're prideful because then we're always the best and we know everything so now let us get started friends so what happened is after the atheist was evoked um, his brother was evoked 
Now his brother has many different, has many similar um, displays, very, very similar characteristics during his life. He's also a spirit in the spirit world. However, he did not commit suicide. Consequently, he's being described as much calmer. But here's what he's saying. The first question our atheist's brother is being asked, can you see your brother, the one who committed suicide, whom we have just finished evoking? And the answer is no, he's fleeing from me. He's fleeing from me. So now instantly in the small print, Alan Carter gives us more information on why that may be. Why can one spirit flee from the other? How is that even possible? Because a lot of us think like, well, in the spirit world, spirit world there is no walls, there is there's no hiding, right? It's an open field. But now let us learn what, how it actually is on the other side, at least what we learn here. One might ask how spirits can avoid one another in the spirit world, since there are no physical obstacles or ref refuges that are impenetrable to sight. Right? We have the same question, how is that possible? However, everything is relative in that world and conforms to the fluidic nature of the beings who live there. Only high order spirits have unlimited perception. So I repeat that, only high order spirits have unlimited perception. It is limited in low order ones. For the latter, namely the low order spirits, fluidic obstacles are the same as physical ones. Let us pause, dear friends. Let us pause. So essentially what he's telling us that everything on this, in the spirit side is of fluidic nature and that it is only the high order spirits that have a lot of freedom in moving around and in seeing things and perceiving things. Also, it's only high, more high order to very high order spirits who can read our minds or who know what's going on, who have more information than we do. But the low order spirits are much more limited. They're much more like us. Now let us go to Genesis for that because Genesis helps us understand it even further. Where is my Genesis book here? So when we go to page 286 in chapter 14, which is on the fluids, chapter 14, page 286, that chapter is incredible. It really helps us understand how the spirit world functions. It literally um, gives us a complete lowdown of how it is organized and how it works. So page 286, and of course we're not going to read the chapter. That's, that's for you if you're interested. But we're gonna pick out some highlights so that we understand how this brother, these two brothers can hide from each other. The nature of the fluidic envelope, which is, remember, when we ex right now as we're sitting here or wherever you are, we have a physical body. Now let's start this way. We have a soul, we are a soul. The soul is connected, surrounded by the Paris spirit which is the body that is connected to the physical body, um, to the soul, molecule by molecule. It is the intermediary between the physical body and the soul. And when we excarnate 
The only thing that falls off is our physical body. What stays together is our soul and our perispirit. So our perispirit is our subtle body that has the mold of our physical body. So when we're in the spirit world, we have the fluidic envelope, which is our perispirit. So this is what he's talking about. The nature of our fluidic envelope, namely the perispirit, always has to do with the spirit's degree of moral advancement. Less evolved spirits cannot change envelopes at will and consequently cannot go from world, one world to the other. Highly evolved spirits, on the other hand, can go to lower worlds and can even incarnate on them. So, what we're learning is our fluidic envelope changes with a degree of our moral advancement. The more we are morally advanced, the high, more evolved we are, the more subtle the consistency, the fluidic consistency of our perispirit will and is, will be and is. However, the lower, the less evolved we are, the denser it becomes. However, when we are more highly evolved spirits with a much lighter, less dense um, envelope, we have more freedom. We can move from the higher worlds to the lower worlds, from the lower worlds to the higher worlds. We can even incarnate on the lower worlds if we want to, as an incarnation perhaps of a mission. But at the same time, we can also, as lower spirits, we can't do that. We don't have that freedom. We can't go to a higher world. We sometimes, when we've been suicides, we have no choices. If you look at the book, Memoirs of a Suicide, you will learn that a lot of the suicidal um, spirits have no freedom whatsoever. They're in spiritual hospitals and decisions are being made for them. So, now we understand one thing, that there is more freedom once we're more morally evolved. Now the next thing is, we're talking about spirit side, because remember, one brother is hiding from the other. Spirit side entails neither the same extent nor the same penetration in all spirits. So all spirits have different side. Only pure spirits possess spirit side in all its power. In low order spirits, it is weakened by the relative density of the perispirit. Remember, lower order spirits have denser perispirits. So now we learn that the spirit side is also limited due to its density. And it, it imposes this density, it feels like kind of a fog on their spirit side. Interesting, right? So when we're lower evolved and we're spirits, we can't see as well, we can't see as much. It's kind of like a fog over our spirit side. When we move on to, to another page in that chapter, we now learn that dematerialized spirits, those higher evolved spirits, are like the man on the mountain. So the more evolved we become, we're like the man on the mountain. Space and length of time do not exist for them. However, the extent and penetration of their sight are proportional to their purification and their level in the spirit hierarchy. So again, we can see further and more when we're more evolved, like a man on the mountain. can see a lot more than if we're on the ground in the valley. 
In comparison to low-order spirits, they are like persons armed with powerful telescopes alongside those who have only their naked eyes. So when we become more evolved, we have powerful telescopes. We can see a lot more. Um, among the latter, namely the higher evolved, the range of uh, the, the lower evolved ones, the range of sight is limited not only because they can only with difficulty detach themselves from the globe to which they are connected, but also because the coarseness of their perispirit veils things in the same way that fog hides from the eyes of the body. So in other words, the less evolved we are, the lower order spirits cannot see very well. Their perispirit are much denser, which allows them to feel like a, have like a fog over their spirit side. They also don't have the same freedom and liberty in moving around. And I know that only a certain level of inner transformation in the spirit world allows spirits to volatate. Lower spirit, spirit uh, lower order spirits often need to take vehicles to move around, so it's just more limited. You know, I mean, we can imagine it. it's maybe like a baby versus an adult, a very um, athletic adult. Maybe we can imagine it that way. Let me see. I see more friends. This Carol, dear friend, hoping that you're that you're feeling really well. So nice to have you. And there's Lucille. Nice to have you, dear friend. Thanks for joining. Thank you, friends. So let's go back to our brother. So now we understand a little more that, you know, they just don't have um, the same faculties. So it's easier to, because of their coarsity, because obviously our two brothers are lower order spirits. Because, you know, suicide and somebody else who has similar issues like pride and, you know, being atheistic, is definitely a lower order spirit. So spirits hide themselves from others by their will, which acts upon their para-spiritual envelope and the surrounding fluids. Let us pause. Spirits hide themselves from others by their will, which acts upon their para-spiritual envelope and the surrounding fluids. Now we're wondering, will, why is it the will? keep thinking and hearing it's all about thought and how does the will fit into that well when we go to um, thought in life Emmanuel chapter 2 spends a whole chapter on will amazing warmly recommended so there we learn he teaches us that the mind of a human has many it's like an office and every office every corporation has different departments right so that's the picture we're holding so for example in the mind there's the department of desire in the mind there's also the department of intelligence there's the department of imagination and then there's the department of memory and there is the department of the will. So now we may ask ourselves, so how do they rank? We know that there is always more important departments and less important departments in every corporation, right? So Emmanuel teaches us that the will is actually the most important department. 
And that is why it is interesting that Alan Kardec is teaching us here in this case, in, in Genesis, that the, the, the spirits will themselves away from each other. It's through their will. Why? Because the will is the most important. It reigns the mind. So it says, the will, Emmanuel says, the will is the manager of all sectors of our mental activities. Those are his words. The will is the manager of all sectors of our mental activities. It controls and oversees all driving for forces, all thoughts. So the brain generates the mental energy, he says. And the will is the controller. It directs those thoughts in different directions. Consequently, in the next chapter in this book, of course, we're learning that the will needs to be educated. Makes sense now. Because if the will is in charge and the will thinks it has to eat all the time <laughs> and tells the mind to think about food, 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 right? It's, it's, a, it's a, a will that's not educated because it can't be all about food in our lives, right? There's a lot more. It should be all about doing the good. So we have to be educated. That's where it is so important to educate ourselves. And we're there with educating our will so we can direct our thinking in the direction of the good. So it makes sense that the spirits hide from each other. As he says, now no, we're going to read the sentence again because now we know more why the will is the, is the one that does it, right? Because it's the CEO of our minds. He says, spirits hide themselves from others by their will. They direct their thinking in and of course, in the spirit world, the thoughts creates images. It's much more plastic. It's much easier formable. And that's how they can hide each other, themselves from each other. Nonetheless, Providence, who watches over each one individually, like a mother over her children, grants or denies this faculty according to each spirit's moral disposition. Depending on the circumstances, it comprises either punishment or recompense. So above all of it, of course, is God. And God is in charge and God is loving and caring and benevolent and either grants that this is possible or doesn't allow it. It depends on each and every single situation. And every single situation is a little bit different. And seeing so be it, dear friends, let us will the good. Exactly, Carol, right? As Emmanuel teaches us in thought and life as well, in chapter 10, understanding, he says, we need to feel the good. We need to visualize the good. We need to, um, what is it? Feel the good, visualize the good, and mold the good with all the resources we can muster. And that is a full-time job. How can we... How can we think about anything else? And that's when we educate our will in that direction. And that's our work and that's our invitation. All right, so let us go back to our friend here. Um, okay, so then um, he's, the, the brother is being asked, you're calmer than your brother. Could you provide a more precise description, description of your suffering? There on earth, don't your self-centeredness and pride suffer when you're obliged to admit your mistakes? Doesn't your spirit revolt at the idea of being humbled by someone who points out your errors? 
Well, just what do you think a spirit suffers who throughout its entire life was persuaded that nothing existed beyond itself and that it was always right, finding itself suddenly confronted with the obvious truth, such a spirit feels annihilated and humiliated. Combined with this is the regret of having for so long forgotten the existence of such a good and tolerant God. Its condition is unbearable. So what is he saying? He's saying that all of his life he thought he was correct, he was right. And I think we all know how it feels to be told that we made a mistake or that we're not correct. And that is very humbling. And some of us have more of an issue with that than others. And But most of us, it somehow doesn't feel really good when we are being told that we're wrong and that we made a mistake and that we need to change our ways, right friends? So this particular spirit apparently spent all of his life thinking that he was always correct. And now that he's excarnated, he's finding out all of a sudden out, out that this is obviously wasn't correct. And that is extremely humbling for him and painful. He feels annihilated. He doesn't even know who he is anymore. And he also feels incredible regret that he never ever recognized that there was a good and tolerant, benevolent, kind and loving, all forgiving, omnipotent, omnipresent God. Because he too was an atheist. And he says his condition consequently is unbearable. Can we imagine that? So our invitation tonight is to bring consciousness to our own lives and to see how well are we able to admit to others and ourselves that we are incorrect, that we are wrong in certain situations. And can we humble ourselves to the place that we admit it to others and ourselves that we can mend, make amends, that we go to other people and apologize. And one really good way of becoming aware of where we're at at this is of course, as we know from the antiquity, we were being asked to know ourselves. That is really the key. How do we get to know ourselves? Which is the baseline of where we're at in this process. It is what St. Augustine recommends to us, both in the Spirit's book as well as in the Gospel according to Spiritism. And that is the nightly review. He says, do what I've done during my lifetime. And that is every night before I went to bed, he says, I reviewed the day that I just completed. And I looked at how what I was thinking. I looked at how I responded to all the people I met in my life or came across, I had contact with. And where can I make amends? Where can I learn? Where can I improve? And that is what we are invited to do as well because then we will realize how prideful we still are. Where do we need to admit first to ourselves that we may not be perfect, 
<laughs> none of us are right and where can we improve ourselves where do we need to improve ourselves and where do we need to make amends and that then we can take into our intelligent sleep and then revisit and improve our actions during the next day so that is a very very powerful method of working on avoiding what our friend the atheist's brother experienced because if we really open ourselves up to this pain it is not pleasant i for myself i definitely am committed to working on that so that i won't be caught in a situation like that at my after my excarnation. So then he says, he finds neither peace nor repose. It will not, we will, I do not find even a little quiet except in the moment when divine grace, and that is God's love, touches me. Because pride has taken hold of the poor spirit, he's talking about himself, of his poor spirit and envelops it entirely. It will need a lot of time to rid itself of that deadly garment. He calls pride a deadly garment. Pride is at the core of our work. All of us on earth need help to become less prideful, to humble ourselves, to become more poor in spirit, which last week we looked at what does poor in spirit mean. It means to humble ourselves. It means to rid ourselves of our preconceived notions of all the things we think we know so well of our attachments and they may be emotional they may be mental they may be physical material so pride just for a moment let us revisit pride because we can never get enough of understanding pride and bringing our consciousness to pride so we can work every single day on reducing it hopefully that is our our proposal that is our invitation so we know that selfishness and pride they feed off of each other pride is the parent and selfishness is the child so in other words the parent usually feeds the child right at least when they're little so when if pride is the parent pride feeds then selfishness because selfishness is the child so in the spirits book question 913 alan kardec so wisely he always asks all the questions we would like to have answered to he says oh there's so many vices of all the vices that there are in the world which one is the one is the root cause of all evil of all badness and the answer is selfishness. And so now we know selfishness is the child of pride and that we read in the gospel according to, learn in the gospel according to spiritism. Consequently, selfishness and pride go together. So we're invited tonight to once again practice humility. Actually, humility, there is a chapter Chapter 24 in Thought and Life, this beautiful book, I, I can't other than pull it out because it gives, you know, when we think of humility, we have a concept. It's kind of like the ceiling of our room, which is flat. When we go into a cathedral, the ceiling is huge and high and it's domed and it reaches to the heavens. This is kind of like how this book Thought and Life is. Emmanuel affords us 
a vision of feeling to be in a cathedral with something like humility, for example. He expands our horizon and our understanding, like it being in a cathedral of humility. Now we understand it better. So I'm just gonna pick out a few things. He says, humility is magnificently manifested in all of the kingdoms of nature. And then he shows us the humility of the flower. It's never in competition with another flower. He shows us the humility of the sun always shining, never waking up in the morning saying, heck, I'm not going to shine anymore. And then he says, um, people who wear the crown of humility will gladly work and serve for the general good. And see, that's a byproduct. We can't be charitable when we're prideful because then, remember, selfishness is the child of pride. We're only thinking of ourselves. We're so busy with ourselves, we can't think of other people. So it's it's vital to humble ourselves, to practice humility. But here's an interesting thing. Often we think when we're humble, we become subservient. We become the doormat for others, right? And here, Emmanuel in his brilliance tells us humility is not subservience. And we ask, how not? How can that be? And he says, it is primarily independent. So humility, he tells us, is primarily independence and inner freedom springing from the depths of our spirit independence and inner freedom from what we're asking well of our attachments of our ego independence of our pride of our selfishness we're not attached to that anymore we don't have to be right we don't have to be the best we don't have to be the most beautiful none of that the, the we don't have to be the richest or most intelligent it's about doing the good, opening our hearts and showing up for other people. So again, humility is not subservience. It is the independence, namely lack of attachments, lack of ego and inner freedom springing from the depths of our spirit. When we have that freedom, we're not worried about anything else. Then we can be charitable. Then we're humble then we can show up for others. We're not running other CDs in the program. I know CDs are now, now old fashioned and outdated too. But if we can imagine we're running another program or like a computer actually. You know, when it's running background programs, it slows down the computer. That's, that's what happens when we're not humble, when we don't practice. We have these other programs run, pride, selfishness, worries, fear, my gosh, there's all this stuff. And then our program slows down. We can't, we're exhausted and we can't do the good. That's the picture, but there's a lot more in this beautiful chapter on humility. But let us go back to our friend here. So then he's being asked, do you mean incarnate, do you mean incarnate brothers or do you mean spirits? Oh, well, he's talking about um, the, bride, the pride and um, let's, let's not go there. So um, it's a little bit out of context. So the chapter ends with the following, the small print. We see here another kind of punishment, Alan Kardec tells us. So we're invited to substitute the word punishment with consequence. And actually, before we continue, I'm reminded, I just reread this chapter in, um, it's called Memoirs of a Suicide, another fantastic book. 
because we keep reading the word punishment in Alan Kardec's books and we know the books are approximately 150 years old so there was a little bit of a different uh, consciousness around that and also we don't know what happened in the translation whether it was maybe translated in a form that um, maybe not so correctly but we know that there is no punishment there's only the law of cause and effect so punishment is something that would be attached to a punishing God. And we know better. We know that God is benevolent and kind and loving and always there to help. And so are, so is Jesus, so is Mother Mary and all the beautiful benevolent spirits on high. So there is not, there's never a punishment. And that is really important for our personal lives because so often we think, oh, we're either blessed with something or we're punished by something. I get sick, I'm punished. I, I lose money or I don't have money, I'm being punished. None of that is true. It's not punishment. So I found this section here. Um, it's about in the middle of the book of Memoirs of a Suicide, which explains, and it's out of context, obviously, because it describes they're in a certain department in the hospital that's overseen by Mother Mary who dedicated her spirit life to being the um, benevolent, loving, caring spirit overlooking all the suicides. And there are varying degrees of, of suicides and suffering spirits. So, you know, he says, we're learning. There's certain situation that these spirits are going through. And then this, this guide says, it is, it is not a punishment because no one inflicts punishment or hands down a sentence. On the contrary, all of us here who serve the law will have made every effort allowable to bring relief to these dreadful situations. And the dreadful situations are linked to suicide spirits. What it really is, what is it really, if it's not punishment? What it really is, really exclamation mark, that's how it's written, is the effect of the cause that the patient himself created with the excesses he took pleasure in. Friends, isn't that so clear? It's always the law of cause and effect. It's a divine law. We can ignore it and then call it something else and it wouldn't do it justice if we call it punishment, for example. But if we truly understand, even if we ignore the law of cause and effect, which is a divine law, we still fall under it. So if we harbor and nurture excesses in our lives, and it starts with our thinking, that's how we started tonight's meeting, off with thought is life. As we think, so we emit. So if we indulge in excessively negative or painful, hurtful, uh, prideful thinking, then we create an effect that's extremely painful to the point that we may take our lives. And then that's we, but we created it. There is no God. There is no outside source or entity that imposes a punishment on us. It's from the inside out we create it for ourselves, on ourselves. We do it. We, we are the creators of this. And that is the law of cause and effect. Isn't it beautiful? The section makes it so amazingly clear. All right. Back to 
So now we understand it better when they say, we see here another kind of punishment. No, it's another kind of effect. The effect is thus not the same for all disbelievers. For this spirit in particular, besides his suffering, is the necessity of recognizing the truths that he reneged on while alive. So remember earlier he said he feels an incredible amount of regret. And we have found that in all the suffering spirits, from the mildly to the strongly suffering and then the suicide spirits, they all experience regret. So punishment is thus not the same for all disbelievers. So the effect is not the same, of course, because the cause is different. For this spirit, besides his suffering, is the necessity of recognizing the truths that he reneged on life. So the consequence that causes this spirit pain is that he omitted realizing that he was prideful and that there was a God. And that he created, consequently, agony and pain for himself. His current ideas reveal a certain degree of advancement compared to other spirits who persist in denying God. It is already some sign of advancement and humility to confess that one was wrong. In a subsequent incarnation, it is more than probable that his disbelief will give way to the innate sentiment of faith. So this spirit, the brother of the atheist, created, imposed this particular suffering by omitting of realizing that the truth is that there is a God and the God is benevolent and always helpful and always um, supporting us towards the good and that being right is the wrong thing. <laughs> That's funny. That practicing pride is not the correct path and that now causes him, the regret of that causes him pain and that is his personal, his particular and personal effect that causes him pain. They call it punishment, but we now know it's an effect. So this ends our beautiful um, uh, chapter on the atheist. Um, Alan Kardec spends the rest of this particular case on um, trying to prove to incarnates at the time that these two invocations were actually authentic. But we don't see the need that we go in there because that is not, that's not the most important lesson for us. We believe that they were involved correctly and that these two um, were actually brothers. I wanted to add that um, for us to be humble, we also need courage. Because to recognize, to get to know ourselves, to do the nightly review, to know thyself, to get to know ourselves, we need to have courage, the courage to overcome ourselves, to, the courage to look at our own selves without rosy glasses. We need to be diligent in looking at ourselves honestly, more so than the others. It's the proverbial plank in our own eyes while we are so worried about the speck in others. Right, friends? So let us be courageous and let us spend the week to come on, let us actually pray, let us close our eyes if we can, if we're in the right position, 
And let us thank God and Jesus and Mother Mary and all the spirit doctors and spirits on high from the bottom of our hearts for these immortal lessons that are provided to us through the diligent and loving, caring work of Alan Kardec, the spirits who work together with him, the mediums who availed themselves to bringing these messages forth. And Emmanuel, who, and Chico Xavier with his dedicated service, who teaches us so much on how to become more humble and becoming aware that we, our work, our inner transformation is guided towards releasing our pride and our selfishness, understanding how they work together, understanding and always realizing that God is present for us to learn to align our world with God's will. We're furthermore grateful for the lesson on courage and getting to know ourselves. We're thanking St. Augustine for the invaluable lesson he brought to us through the Gospel and the Spirit's book of doing the nightly review, which is so vital and helpful in our transformational process. And we thank the spirits on high on educating us on the power of our will, that the will is the guiding force in our being of our minds. So we can observe our own thinking and see where does our will need more education. Let us also connect with all those spirits who are in suffering and in, in, in need of support. And we're sending our love and care towards them. And we're praying for the governments of the world to open their hearts in connecting with God, to hearing the guidance, to realizing the support that is so available from the spirit world. We thank Incarnate Radio and the Incarnates and Spirit Guides who bring this beautiful platform to us so we can connect and study and practice the good, reminding ourselves that we need to seek the good, to feel the good, to visualize the good, and practice the good always. And with this and so much gratitude in our hearts, we humbly ask for permission to close tonight's study session. And so be it, dear friends. I'm seeing Soul is saying, let me see my eyes, may God help us to do the right while we are here. Yes, Soul. The Spiritism help us a lot, but we have to put in practice all we hear we're learning. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, soul. Thank you. You're so right. And it's beautiful how you're summarizing it. Exactly. We're learning, we're understanding, we're educating ourselves. But as Emmanuel also teaches us in thought and life, there are two wings for us humans to soar. Two wings. One is the knowledge wing, which is our intellectual knowledge, which is what we're doing here. And then the next one is practicing the good. 
It is our moral transformation. It's bringing it all into practice. And that we will do in the weeks to come. And so God willing, we will meet again in a week, same time, same place, to continue with our suicide cases. Thank you, dear friends, for coming here and participating. Much love and good night.